Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Chitheads podcast. My guest today is Todd Norian. Todd seeks to awaken others to their inherent potential for healing and joy by integrating the body, mind, and heart through yoga and meditation. Believing that yoga is a gateway for self-discovery and spiritual growth, Todd founded Ashaya Yoga in 2012 to guide his students through an alignment-based, heart-opening practice that builds strength and flexibility while giving them access to the universe of power within. A student of yoga since 1980, Todd brings advanced biomechanical knowledge, Shaiva Tantra philosophical teachings, and an unapologetic sense of humor to his international workshops and trainings. As a classically trained jazz musician, Todd created several music albums of yoga and relaxation, including Bija, Soothing Music and Mantras for Yoga and Meditation. And you can learn more by reading Todd's book, which we're going to talk about today, Memoir of a Jewish Yogi. So hello, Todd. How are you? Good. How are you? (laughs) So it's a real pleasure to chat with you today. I have had the great pleasure of reading um, uh, the majority of your unpublished manuscript that I just mentioned. And um, that manuscript is, as I said, a memoir. And so it takes... Um, the reader on this beautiful journey through your life. And what I really love about the book is that it it um, introduces a lot of the yogic concepts in this really um, accessible and practical and life-informed way. You know, obviously, as we go through your life, we're also being introduced to these teachings. So there's this um, incredibly integrated way that the teachings are are transmitted through your memoir, which is really what's um, one of the things that's very beautiful about it. So because we're going to talk so much about your life and memoir today. Um, normally, I would start with a, a question about your story, but we'll, we'll, we'll set that aside for a moment and maybe um, start with where we're at, which, right, is, is kind of we're in the middle of this um, quite dramatic and, and, and uh, troubling moment regarding the COVID-19 uh, virus. And when you and I had been talking back and forth, we discussed, or you had mentioned um, exploring this concept of unreasonable happiness as a way of, um, or perhaps a lens onto how we might engage with 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 some of the challenges that we're facing. So, do you want to uh, uh, unpack that for us, and 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 how we can get to this place of uh, of unreasonable happiness that might be helpful at this time? Sure, um, I think. The place to start is to understand what I mean by unreasonable happiness. <laughs> it's a great <And> term. <laughs> that is um, to be able to access a level of happiness for no reason at all. And this is the like desired state of the yogi. Um, the yogi just doesn't want temporary happiness or let's say haphazard happiness or halfway happiness. Mm. The yogi wants joy wants a a kind of i wouldn't say permanent joy but on one level it's joy it's like unreasonable joy joy for no reason at all and the analogy i like to use for that is think of it that we're we're all like these oceans of consciousness and on the surface of the ocean are the waves these waves are the ups and downs of daily life and you know it's like right now, it's it's the COVID-19 virus. I mean, it's so intense for so many people. 
Um, it's an extraordinary wave. Maybe we should call it a tsunami wave. Yeah. Uh, the bigger waves are harder to navigate, but still it's, it's a wave all the same. And most people go through life and these waves are like our individual natures, but we go through as oceanless waves. In other words, we have forgotten where the wave comes from. It seems that as soon as we're born, we get cosmic amnesia. We forget who we are. We forget where we came from. We forget what our true life agenda is. And I do believe everyone has a life agenda that they come in with. So the process of finding a way to happiness amidst the waves is to remember that the wave is infused through and through by the vastness of the ocean. Mm. In the sense, the metaphor is that we have universal consciousness within us and it takes us deep into the essence of who we truly are, which is vital, radiant, healthy, um, joyful beings. Like the nature of, of the universe is freedom, but the nature of freedom is happiness. And how I come to that is, you know, if you're in pain and all of a sudden you're relieved of that pain, I think of myself, like I used to get migraine headaches. And during the migraine, you don't want to be around me. I mean, I'm like miserable. I'm spreading misery everywhere. <laughs> as soon as the migraine lifts, I'm released from the pain and the resulting emotion is happiness. We could say relief or joy or a sense of normalcy again. So to understand that the essence of the emotion of this vastness of the ocean of consciousness that is who we are, that expresses itself through the wave, has at its essence happiness. And this is a happiness for no reason at all. Mm. And I think some people come to it naturally, like you just know, everyone knows people that are just happy-go-lucky people, well-adjusted people. But I think more so than not, especially today, because the waves just seem to be pretty big, yeah. and I'm talking about highs and lows, um, is that through an effective daily spiritual practice, we start to find a way back into that ocean where we dwell either in the ocean or close to the ocean and we start absorbing the qualities of that sort of our primordial true nature mm. and once we really become absorbent and filled every day with that vastness of consciousness which by its nature pulses with bliss we start to be able to hold on to that a little bit more of the time when we're not in a deep meditative state to bring into the world. And then, you know, I go up and down all the time. I'm sometimes depressed, sometimes ecstatic. But what I find is underneath the ups and downs, like the pulsation of the wave, I somehow have extended and grown a root deep into the ocean of bliss and I'm able to access that more of the time. Let's put it this way, I'm less thrown off center by the waves or I'm thrown off center, like I'm surfing, I get knocked off my board and then I can get back on quickly. Whereas people without any kind of a spiritual practice or foundation or even religion, you know, um, they get knocked off out of their center and it could take them days or weeks and 
a whole lot of meds to get back into the center. Yeah. And, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm all in favor. Use every means that we have from medical science to spiritual practices to help us find that place in the center where we gain a sense of stability and a sense of perspective to be able to surf the waves. Everyone's got to learn how to surf these waves. There's no, there's no getting around that. Yeah. So I want to ask a question about kind of the meaning of, of joy here, because I think, um, you know, a lot of people understand that, that word as a kind of superficial elation, but I, I, I sense that you're suggesting something deeper, which, um, uh, which might be expressed in, in kind of a, a joy that persists even during pleasant and unpleasant experiences. So one has access to this state of joy, even though on the surface of life, one might be even feeling perhaps unpleasant things. Is that correct? Absolutely. Mm. Um, and, and part of what informs this perspective is the concept of a non-dual reality mm -hmm. where the waves are an expression of the ocean. And if that's true and our consciousness has the vastness of absolute consciousness and the temporary changing, fluctuating consciousness of up and down, that we're both, then I think it comes down to which self are you identifying with? And I think that's why when I go into meditation as a formal practice um, daily, I start to shift my identity from um, like my core wounded identity, which are basically my self limitations or my less evolved parts of myself called the inner child, where we all have these wounds. Let's just call it some scars. We have imprints of the past whether that is from this life, from previous lives, we um, inherit these. These are the grooves that, that actually um, shape the kind of individual life wave that each of us are. And um, because we're both, it's then how do we stay connected to our spiritual center while we're going through these things. And I think the point I was trying to make there is that there's no human emotion that's not a divine emotion. Mm -hmm. There's no human state that's not also a divine state such that everything in manifestation is, is an expression of spirit. And, you know, I, I don't mean that as pie in the sky. I mean, you know, how are you walking on this earth? Are you seeing it as a sacred earth walk? Mm -hmm. Or are you racist and dissing different people and, you know, being angry and resentful? And, you know, um, so I, I think in, in the philosophy then, it's learning how to embrace diversity as the way to seek a greater unity. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. And I think that um, uh, one of the things that you've already kind of mentioned is that um, there's a gap right between um, just sort of intellectually acknowledging that everything is divine and actually then experiencing it. Like the, the knowledge is important, but we also need to kind of cultivate a certain kind of 
of knowingness, right, in our own body mind that will permit an encounter with that sort of um, uh, that sort of you know the divinity, be, being able to perceive the divinity of of uh, a wide range of emotions, not just the the quote unquote happy or you know seemingly spiritual. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then I guess I'm also just curious um, if you could share with the listeners who perhaps maybe, and I asked this also in our last episode about um, you know I'm really trying right now to to offer as much resources as possible for people in a time when maybe they they really are feeling the need for a spiritual practice but don't really know where to start um and i know you have a certain you know background and a certain tradition that you practice but in the absence of um in in the in the situation where someone doesn't have a practice at this moment what would you suggest that they do where can they go to maybe uh begin this process of opening up to the kind of experience that you're talking about yeah. Um, well, um, you know, I think you want to follow your heart. That's what I always advise to people because there's so many different paths and practices. Yeah. I think a good indicator is if it feels right to you in your heart and you resonate with it in a way that um, has a very close to zero resistant quotient. <laughs> In the beginning, because if the path is really right, it's going to attract you in, and then you're going to hit a wall. Yeah. So I'm not saying um, it's not. There's not going to be a struggle. That is, you're to step closer, a little closer to your fears and and resistances. Just try to see what's what's the working mechanism behind that, deconstruct that, come to understand that more, and then poof, the resistance brings uh, a revelation, you know. Um, So I think you need to kind of explore. And of course, I would say, well, come, you know, do some of my Facebook Live classes. I always give a little bit of um, philosophy about that. And if you like that, you know, ashayayoga.com, I am trying to draw people into this very, very deep, esoteric, effective spiritual practice in increments to come and, you know, try a class, try, you know, um, doing some of the meditation that I have already recorded. And then, you know, maybe at the end, I can name some of the other methods that I've studied and Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. And I certainly want to point people in the direction of uh, all of your wonderful resources. So we'll we'll definitely get to that as well. Um, Okay. So now I want to talk about. I want to circle back now to the memoir, which I've, like I said, have had the pleasure of reading. And um, you know, anybody that knows you, Todd, I was saying this before the interview, knows you as an incredibly um, open-hearted person. And um, and the the book is really an outgrowth and expression of that and it's really you know the the stories of your childhood are incredibly endearing and charming in so many ways and um but i want to kind of pierce in at the point you know or enter into the the history right around the time when you when you discover yoga and what's unique of course about your experience is that you spent many years living in an ashram in the kripalu ashram and um and so i want to talk about you know how you got there and 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 kind of what the condition of your life was such that made you 
susceptible <laughs> to the brainwashing. No, what made you, you know, so easily inclined to join this, you know, this spiritual community? Well, I didn't know that I wanted an intentional community. Mm -hmm. um, I'd say, you know, at that time I was studying music and first I was, you know, doing classical piano performance, uh, University of Michigan, which was great. But once I got to college, I realized, you know, I didn't, I couldn't really compete with the high level of competition. I was like a star during my high school years because it was such a sm small school. But at the college level, it got very, very intense. And I'd always been into a pop music and jazz. I always had jazz bands since I was 11. And my dad was also a trumpet player and he had his jazz band. So I kind of had that growing up. And so I think what turned me towards that, it started by, you know, failing classical piano performance and my thing, look, you have to decide, you know, a C minus and a D in piano performance is not going to cut it. Mm -hmm. So you have to decide if you want this or something else and then just go with it. He was very loving and accepting, but also quite stern. Um, so I got clear that I loved music, but I really wanted more of a freedom of expression because my heart was into that. Instead of playing music that was 200 and 300 years old, which is a beautiful form in and of itself, I'm not knocking it, but it, it, it just, it lost its charm for me. And I needed, I was seeking a more, uh, a form that was more self-expressive. So then I went uh, down to University of Miami. They happened to have a good jazz school and a good piano jazz department. And right across the street from the university was a yoga studio. And I had previously spent a summer at home and one of my old uh, classmates came home. He was a professional dancer. I had just kind of dropped out of this music thing and we connected and he looked vibrant and radiant. I mean, his health was so clear. And I just kept look, looking at him and I said, come on, like, what are you doing? He said, oh, I do yoga. And he told me about Kripalu and he said, you know, I live there and feel free to, to visit. So I was traveling from University of Miami, which is in uh, Miami, Florida, up to a summer jazz course at Eastman School of Music every summer. And on the way back one year, before I was going into my master's degree program, I, I saw that I could stop off in Pennsylvania on my way down. This is Kripala was in Pennsylvania uh, in his earliest days before moving to um, Stockbridge, Massachusetts. And so I did, and my friend convinced me to take a 10-day course called Quest for the Limitless You. I love and that I title, The Quest for the Limitless You. <laughs> so good. Limitless me. Anyway, I went for 10 days and stayed for 13 years. Wow. Um, I canceled a free fellowship in jazz education three days before it was to start. Totally pissed off my professors. My, I had to tell my parents and, you know, they kind of lost their investment uh, of my undergraduate degree in music and they got hysterical, basically. My dad wanted to sue the ashram because, um, you know, in their minds I had joined a cult and yeah. later, you know, I would argue with them that maybe I did join a cult, but what cult are they in? I was like, exactly. question your cult, you yeah. know, yeah. mine's bringing heaven on earth and to 
find a, a state of inner health and this unreasonable happiness so we could serve people more. What are you doing? You know, smoking, drinking, and uh, all that other stuff. Um, so that was kind of the environment. My parents had been going through a divorce. I mean, I was only 20 at that time. I didn't move in until I was 23, actually. But um, the divorce was intense for me. And when I, only in retrospect, see, I have the, the wisdom. Right. But I look back and I say, you know, I was searching for a loving family. I feel like, you know, I desperately needed to find some stability in a loving community. And Kripalu was it. I mean, love is kind of like their motto. Yeah. And um, it was a really beautiful experience for, you know, a significant amount of of those 13 years that I was there. Yeah, well, the 13 years, um, there was a little hiccup at the beginning, <laughs> <laughs> um, which was one of my favorite parts of the book, which is where um, you have a spiritual experience, but you know, from an you know from the kind of uh, stula level of reality or the 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 kind of you know everyday world, you had essentially a psychotic break, and you know you had to leave the ashram. You were taken to a hospital. So, can you tell us about that? Um, and you know, just that experience and, and what it was like for you. Yeah. Um, I rarely talk about this and the book is, is not yet published. So I'm, I'm kind of bracing myself for when it hits the fan. Um, but I have, I have told certain groups and I don't mind talking about it because, um, I'd say the debate is really up on whether it was a spiritual, a psychotic break or a spiritual emergency. So, um, in my book, I talk a lot about um, life is meaningless, and it's up to us to assign meaning to every experience, and that we have the power to assign meaning that lifts us up and expands our consciousness, and it's like a dimmer switch, or we have the power to turn in the meaning so that we dim our light down and make ourselves small. So um, everything that, I, that has happened to me in my life now, my perspective is that you know, I learned from my past and it has brought me to where I am today. So the best use of the past is to gain wisdom from it. Um, so um, during this 10-day course, we did so many self-discovery exercises that were all pointed to removing obstacles, creating clarity around um, our psychological states growing up, our relationship with our parents, um, relationship with, um, as kids, you know, competitive sports, um, love relationships and all that stuff. So in a way, the course was designed, you know, through yoga and also through, um, there was, a, I don't know if you know Jean, Jean Houston, um, but back in that day, she um, had just um, written the book called The Possible Human. And she was right on the cutting edge. I think she still is a, an evolutionary teacher, uh, The Possible Human. And so um, a lot of the exercises we went through were based on her book. And it was like we just sort of lifted up the carpet of karma to look underneath and then give the rug a shake. Mm. And I faced and experienced so many of my childhood 
um, disappointments, upsets, we could say even traumas, although I was never physically abused, I would say there's a lot of, you know, high intense anger and emotion growing up in my family. And then also the divorce, this, yeah. my parents, this feeling of, of incredible loss, confusion and uh, abandonment. I think that's what I was going through. So as a result of all that, I just got through it all. I cried my eyes out every single day. And I remember the program director and I, can I say his name? Do it. Uh, well, okay. Don Stapleton. He's my mentor and beautiful man and one of my best friends ever. Um, he lives now in Costa Rica. We've maintained contact throughout this time, but he was the director. He held me every day and I cried my eyes out. Sometimes I didn't even know what I was crying about, but it was a huge release. And because I think of his love, love of the community there, I got through so much junk from my childhood that I felt completely free. I felt so empowered. Uh, in addition, um, the last five days of this course was when the guru at that time, um, Amrit Desai, would give what they call darshan, where he would chant, he would actually, he was transmitting kundalini shaktipat. That was his teacher's expression. And he kind of moved that forward. And um, I just absorbed so much insight and spirituality. And I felt like the spirit was really moving me. Then the course ended, all the program guests left, the guru went off onto a seminar, and the teachers in the course left, and I was kind of left by myself there, and I decided to stay on and do work. It's like a work exchange program at the time. The energy was so different, and what happened is I plummeted. Talk about tsunami waves. I was on the crest of the wave, and I plummeted to the base of the wave, and I experienced just like amazing, uh, very fearful, threatening experience. I, th I thought someone was going to kill me. Um, I didn't sleep very much at that time. I wasn't hungry. Um, and, you know, psychologists would say, okay, yeah, he's, he's expressing now some mania, you know, or like some bipolar situation. And whether I was or wasn't, I'd never experienced that before, nor did I experience that after. Yeah. But I was the, the throes of this experience that I was having. During that time in the peaks, I felt like I had opened a threshold to universal wisdom that I was learning from everything. And I, I talk about some of the bizarre, bizarre experiences in my book. My favorite part is when you try to kiss your aunt because you've, because all of the social propriety has got out the window and you have no sense of what right and wrong. And you try to kiss your aunt and she resists you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was horribly embarrassing. But at the time, I, I really didn't even know what I did. Um, at the peak of that, I was so absorbed, I could call it in a, this spiritual practice, spiritual awakening that started to take on a life of its own. Um, at one point, I was guided to go up to the top of the hill behind the ashram and remove all my clothes and become natural man. I even took out my contact lenses and just flung them. And there I was with nothing to hide in this kind of primordial, natural being. And I proceeded to walk back to the, at that time, celibate ashram. Right, without your clothes on. Let's just without, highlight that again. <laughs> without my clothes on. And nor did I have any awareness that I was naked. Wow. 
And, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not saying like, okay, well, you know, we hear about these spiritual masters and gurus in India where they have these, um, you know, um, euphoric experiences and they walk. But honestly, at that point, I felt like my, um, sort of social conscious awareness was hijacked. And, and what I was experiencing was a pure stream of downloaded spiritual consciousness from universal. And, uh, that's what was in control. I, I wasn't in control. Well, the director at that time saw me, uh, and I'm grateful he saw me right away and ditched me into the, the brother's barn at that time and, uh, got me dressed and realized that I was almost incoherent. Um, and was not making sense. They called my parents who were going through the divorce. They had to fly out from California. They contacted my uncle who was a, a doctor. I mean, he, he wasn't a psychologist. He was a dietitian. Uh, and he drove, you know, with, um, you know, my aunt and my cousin to come up and, and help because I couldn't drive or anything. And they're the ones that took me to um, the Philadelphia Psychiatric Hospital. Oh man. So then I had spontaneous experiences happening. Um, they're called Kriyas where the breath just moves into these patterns of purification. There were spontaneous mantras that went through me. There were spontaneous movements and I became very, very fearful that I, I lost all control of, of my body, my, my physical functions, you know, um, they put me into an isolated, um, room where basically I, just went crazy for a period of time. I don't even know how long I was in there, but for at least a day or two. And um, it seemed to work its way through me. And then they pumped me full of drugs, which didn't really help. In exactly 10 days in the hospital, I recovered. The program itself was 10 days. Mm. Um, they wouldn't let me chant mantra because that was one of the main things that kind of triggered it. I had this endless loop mantras, the guru mantra there, and I played it throughout the day 24-7 with my headphones on a cassette loop tape. That was my, my jazz transcribing recorder. And I remember washing dishes in the kitchen, and I blocked everything else, everybody outside. I was just listening to mantra. So that's another reason why, like, I – I opened myself through into a voltage, let's say a thousand watts coming through wires that were only geared for a hundred watts. Mm. And I think that's what happened is the Shakti kind of blew my circuits. Of course, that only happens in my estimation when you're ready for it. So on some level, when I look back, I say, yeah, it was too much, obviously, but I must have been ready for it because I've never gone back to that level of being in complete, um, you know, dysfunction. And after that 10 days, the entire trajectory of my life, my perspective, my outlook, my capacity to lead from my heart, my capacity to trust that there is a spiritual experience here that I was longing to connect with. Now I had connected with it. Mm. And the universal message I kept bringing, uh, kept getting back was, now what are you going to do about it? Yeah. It's almost like you you needed that strong of voltage to have the proof within yourself that it was 
a real experience that you could be you could have but now that you know now that you have that proof within you don't need to have it in the same sort of according to the same kind of charge right um i mean i think it's really interesting that you never because people hearing this would think oh you're predisposed to psychotic episodes and you know this is sort of the psychological kind of reading right and that and that therefore you shouldn't be doing these things like um like these spiritual practices which are dangerous for your constitution but because you didn't have anything like that subsequent to that it sort of it makes you know you look at it a little differently but I'm, i was just w- thinking as i read it just how i mean this is literally just like the 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 story poster child of like the brainwashed you know son who goes away to an ashram and you know leaves <laughs> in a psychotic episode you know your parents must have been totally mortified and then you know, as you're proceeding through the story, you know, a few pages later, you're like, dad, can I go back? And I just imagine that they must have just been so scared in in a certain way, you know, because they just didn't understand. Um, And so uh, eventually they got there with you, which is a beautiful part of the story. Um, But, you know, another thing on this sort of, you know, as you were going through all of these um, realizations. One of the things I also liked that I wanted to mention was you, you, some, some teacher told you that your nose was big because you ate too much chicken. (laughs) And very soon after your, (laughs) very soon after your spiritual experience, you were with your mother and, you know, sharing some of your new knowledge and, and you shared with her that you finally knew why your nose was so big. (laughs) She was, she was so accepting. Yeah, it's it's amazing. So I came back from that experience, and um, I kind of recovered more in Miami. And um, I was club dating at that time, meaning you know playing for bar mitzvahs and all that, which is kind of a big deal in Miami because you have all the big Miami hotels there, and the bar mitzvahs and weddings and things. They're they're no small matters. They're really huge. Um, so that's how I you know made my my money just to survive and pay rent and stuff. But I'd also um, gotten involved in some very intense uh, purificatory diet things. Like uh, I did macrobiotics, learned how to cook it, and I went like sort of full hog into that. And um, (laughs) we had these trainers, they came in and I was studying with them. And they're the ones that did this macrobiotic diagnosis telling me that because they, you know, they read your face and the facial features and the wrinkles and the size of your nose and all that. And I can't believe they, now maybe they said that and I heard him as, maybe he was joking. I don't really know, but I took it as that was really true because you are what you eat. So um, anyway, that was quite funny. And, and my mom, I mean, I kind of asked her about it, you know, years and years later and um well, she doesn't remember it. That's the thing. Wow. But at the time, I remember she was just she just was not judgmental, and I think she just sort of laughed it off. And you know, I didn't uh, sort of force the issue, but I do remember her um, tolerating my macrobiotic meals because I made her miso soup and brown rice with gamasio and um, hijiki, which is <laughs> seaweed, and uh, she she ate it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you said she doesn't exp- she doesn't remember that specific instance with the the chicken nose but um <laughs> 
<laughs> but uh, but I, I'm curious, do you, did you ever talk to her sort of, you know, later about just that time in your life and like your, from her perspective, you're just kind of impressionable willingness to surrender yourself to these, you know, regimes of, of thought and practice that, that she found to be, you know, perhaps scary and, and, and brainwashing in nature? Yeah, I think she would admit to uh, having those thoughts and those feelings when it happened to me, um, as any parent would. Yeah. Um, part of the path that I'm on, um, it's through Kripalu and through the other spiritual practices that I did, and other there are other paths. I mean, the <laughs> Kripalu thing was the 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 first fall of the guru, and there was another one after that, but. Um, I think what happened was, is um, the healing that occurred inside of me helped me to when I spoke with my parents to be such a good listener in a certain way that I was able to disarm their fears, connect with the love that they felt. And I have this primal love had with my dad. He passed away last year. And I have a primal kind of love with my mom and because I was able to tune into that um, over the years, they they saw when I would visit that I was healthy, I was happy, and I was making a difference in the world. And then I invited my mom to come and do yoga. She fell in love with the yoga. I did some therapeutics on my dad. He let me actually do some therapeutics on him. He never really did the practice, but I think after time I won their I always had their love, but I won their respect back again for someone who followed his own heart and was successful. Yeah. And um, I I just, you know, my I, I don't know if you read the part about my teacher training. My dad and, yeah. and my stepmom came to visit me at Kripalu, and they wanted to see me teach, and it was during – an intensive part of the teacher training there where we did fasting and then we did rebirthing, which is this big transformational breath blowout experience. The summer course there is hotter than hell. We had 80 people in the room. If you know Kripalu, if you've ever been to their, um, the Shadowbrook rooms, the auditorium. And I told my dad, you know, this is not the best session to come to. There's going to be catharsis. People are going to be crying and screaming. He said, no, I can take it. I want to see you teach. I can take it. So said, okay. So he came, he and my stepmom, and they're there participating through all this. I looked over halfway through the transformational breath, and they are totally in the experience. And my dad's crying. She's holding him in her arms. They're both sobbing. They're having some experience. The whole room is like electric with this breathing. And you know, one person had to run out of the room. I knew that there was going to be catharsis, but my dad and stepmom, they were, they were just okay in their little um, corner of the room. And at the end of it, we're having sharing. My dad stands up, marches up to the platform in the middle of the room, grabs the microphone out of my hand, and he says, Butch, which is my childhood name because I, I had, you know, short, very white hair as a little kid, and he called me Butch said, Butch, I may not approve of your lifestyle or even accept, you know, what your, you know, the philosophy and all that. But I know a master teacher when I see one. 
He said, thank you. And he burst into tears. I burst into tears. I gave him a big embrace. The whole room was just moved. And in that moment, not even knowing that I needed my father's approval for what I was doing, I felt completely validated. Um, and our relationship just completely blossomed from, from that point on. So I had a lot of support and a, a love that was maybe not always felt on the surface, but deep down, it was a solid base of support for me that in retrospect, I recognize and have been grateful for ever since. Yeah. Yeah, that was a really beautiful point of the book. There's another beautiful point where you are embracing both of your parents um, um, following kind of, you know, uh, an experience of them being estranged and then and 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 I'll and I'll invite the the read the listeners to read the book to learn more about that particular moment. But I want to talk about um, now I want to get to, of course, um, the the uh, what is, you know, particular to your experience, which is the fact that you were involved in these two communities, both of which had their kind of teachers, primary teachers fall from grace. Um, but before we get into that first that first experience, I want to just ask, you know, in relation to the ashram life, which, you know, reading it, it's uh, for, for me, there's something idyllic about it. I mean, I'm always sort of there's a part of me that always sort of thinks about how nice it would be to live in a kind of intentional community surrounded by people who are doing the same practices. And um, and, you know, when you and of course, many much of this was during the 80s and early 90s when there were many, many people at this ashram. I mean, you talk about there were, you know, 200 something or maybe 300 uh, residents and then an additional 200 people who were visitors. So it was really a very large community. And then, you know, there are other, you know, ashram experiences that I know about in the Northeast that also at that time had very robust communities. And now it seems like we, well, of course, Kripalu has, has obviously changed as a, you know, in the aftermath of the experience has changed into a different kind of center. Um, but I, you know, I, I mentioned before we started recording that I was curious about what you see as having shifted in the culture um, to make it less sort of perhaps amenable or less um, prone, perhaps isn't the best word, but, but inclined towards this kind of community building. Do you have thoughts on that, on what has, what has changed I, I can speak in general terms. I do have some thoughts about it. Um, I'm not saying that it's right or that this is the truth, but if I were to just reflect and share some of my musings about what I'm seeing, and especially from what I experienced, was I think human consciousness is evolving and we are maturing, which puts us right up against racism and power over other people and intense practice of abuse that can no longer be silent. And it's almost like we're moving through an adolescent phase, you know, um, maybe childhood spirituality where we needed a leader to tell us what to do and we just did it without question to an adolescent phase where the leader would tell us what to do and we would fight against that and resist it to a level closer to adult spirituality 
where we're able to both hear the teaching, digest it, discern using our mind, keep what works, toss the rest, and move on. Mm. So that what I see now in the teacher that I want to be and the teachers that I'm studying with now are teachers who recognize the responsibility of the teacher today, that it's not to be a guru. Like the responsibility is, is not to go, like to elevate self over others. And I think there's a responsibility on the student that we've evolved as students, the adult sort of experience of being a student is how to be receptive, but not submissive. Yeah. And I think it's a difference between submission and deference. Deference is you defer to the person who is more studied, who has more knowledge in that way, so you can actually listen and learn something. Um, but without submission. And I think that's the lesson that I learned because early on, I think I gave away my power to the other person because I hadn't fully integrated my shadow, which is an ongoing experience. And there's a part of the shadow, let's say these in darkened areas of ourselves, our blind spots, our subconscious patterning, where there's some scars are, are lurking underneath that we may not even be aware of. Yoga, to me, is we're shining light into the shadow, the darkened areas of our life, to perceive the value and compassion and empathy of what we've gone through to source light from the shadow in such a way that we've integrated both. And, um, and I think what I, how I've developed is instead of submission, I've been able to empower myself to hold myself. So when you empower, when you praise someone else, uh, because you haven't recognized those same qualities in yourself, um, there's a term it's called shadow hugging. And so I will put someone up on a pedestal because those are the qualities that I also have, but I'm unable to recognize. And I put myself down to put the other person up. You can't put someone up on a pedestal without putting yourself down. Yeah. And I think that was my learning to stop doing that. Um, yes, I'm grateful for my teachers and I see their value. So it's a fine line, maybe a double, a double-edged sword there of how to be a good student where you can listen and receive the wisdom and the value and the teaching of what the other person is offering without putting them higher or putting myself lower. Right. And I think as students and as evolving conscious beings, we have leveled the playing field. Mm. And for at least in my mind, I know there's students who are still, still adhere to the guru model is um, there's a new model of teaching, you know, where everybody is equally empowered. Um, and, you know, all voices are valid and worthy. Um, and we learn from each other. We learn from community. So anyway, those are, those yeah. are some thoughts. And I, and I think in the traditions that still have the guru thing, um, because as students, our consciousness has evolved, and we and we're empowering ourselves to not stay silent. Morality is morality. You can't be 
a world teacher and abuse people. Yeah. I just, I, it, it's like a contradiction. And it's that duplicity that I experienced not once, but twice that, you know, I think I was a little slow, <laughs> slow on the uptake. I needed to get the experience twice. And, and that's really in 2012 when the, the second community fell. It's when I finally decided, you know, I'm not going to do this a third time. Mm-hmm. And then that's when I founded Ashaya Yoga, yeah. which is the, the yoga method that I, that I teach now. Um, so I don't know. It's like we live and learn and grow. And... Yeah. I mean, I want to go back to um, uh, just to talk a little bit more about this first kind of fall from grace, because I thought, you know, just just highlighting the just how heartbreaking, you know, it was for the community. And I think, you know, a lot of times in these, these stories, what gets focused on is the, the failures of the teacher. And of course, that's all extremely legitimate. But what sometimes doesn't get enough kind of attention is some of the process of healing that the community has to go through. And, and there were, you know, there were a lot of attempts within that you write about, um, within the Kripalu community to try to resolve uh, and heal and to move forward um, as a community that had you know varying degrees of effect. But one thing that I really thought was very beautiful was that um, was and and that you kind of seem to celebrate in the book as something that was particularly fruitful is you went through this ritual of 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 essentially putting all of the the symbols of what you had lost in a coffin. And essentially burying it. I mean, you went, you had a funeral for your, and, and so can you talk a little bit about just like the grief of it and, and, and the need for a mourning process and, 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 and what you learned that's kind of necessary when something like this happens to a community that becomes the center of your life? Wow. Yeah. I mean, um, I, you said it, I think grief is absolutely what I went through and what I felt. And, um, you know, there's, I don't know all the five steps, but there's like five stages of grief. Um, and the fifth stage gets you to deep acceptance, you know, after you go through the rage and the sadness and the loss and all that. Um, and I went through all those experiences, not knowing what the levels were, but I was enraged for a long time. And you know, I'm a musician. I used to chant. I gave up chanting for a year. Mm. Um, and I was confused and uh, afraid. And I think it took me a long time. And it was through those rituals of uh, doing things to help me um, act out my longing to release the past and learn from it and move on. And I think it's a very healthy thing to do is to somehow do some external symbol, symbolic ritual or something to release. So I remember putting my mala beads and all the pictures and photos of the guru um, as a, a symbol to, to move on. And I heard recently there's a sixth step to grief. And that is wisdom. Mm. And I really think it's worthwhile contemplating, you know, after going through all the stages, um, how can I 
accept the events that happened. And I think for all of us, you know, the deepest grief is, is the grief you're feeling. So we can't, I can't really say, oh, my grief was worse. There's no comparison. Grief is grief. And it's something we all experience. But some people experience their grief and they go lower, they go deeper, and they settle in a state of complete devastation and depression for a very, very long time. And I've been inquiring into what, what is it that allows someone to experience the depth of their grief and rise up stronger from it. Mm. And that is the capacity we all have. But you have to get to a level of you know, deep acceptance and then from deep acceptance, using our awareness to reflect on lessons learned, what happened, that the sixth step becomes wisdom, and I would even add a seventh step, gratitude. And, you know, uh, I think the ashram experience, well, it's it's a good, a good example. I was going to say, you know, I lost my father, too, and I had to go through the same kind of things. Um, and this kind of adult perspective, adult spirituality is how to hold grief and gratitude in the same hand. Yeah. How to hold the value of the spiritual teachings and the horrendous abuse of others and neglect of morality, you know, abuse of power. Um, one of the terms that the psychologists uh, told us during that time was cognitive dissonance, which in a certain way, because the tantric path is all about managing the paradox. Yeah. You know, in tantra, we're not trying to fix the problem. We're trying to manage the paradox. And I think as I've been able to, you know, go in and out of managing that paradox successfully or unsuccessfully, um, there's a deeper wisdom that comes out of the middle of that, that place in between that has told me the yoga was true because I'm proof. My experience is proof that the yoga worked. There's a, there are spiritual practices, you know, find some that work. Um, the teacher is fallible. The teacher is, I mean, they're all, they're doing the best they can as well. Why do I need to judge them? But there came a point where the teaching, the purity of the teaching became clouded and distorted by um, the lack of personal integration by both the teachers that happened. And, you know, this is kind of a generalization, but the fact that no shadow work was being done by them yeah, is, is what really clinched it for me, is that unless I'm doing my deep inner work and knowing, even as I'm reaching for the light, Bigger, the greater the light, the greater the shadow. And I think this is the new spirituality. We understand and, you know, that I'm perfectly imperfect as I am. I've, I've stopped this perfection. You know, I, I'll say um, I used to call myself a perfectionist, but, but now that's that label is really confining. So yeah. now I say I'm having a moment of perfectionism. <laughs> but this idea of... Um, progressing um, towards greater and greater perfection, that perfection actually evolves as you evolve, that leaves room all the time for this part of me that's learning, that's not whole, 
that's incomplete, that is still wounded, that it still has like traces of trauma and to let that be okay. Mm. You know? Yeah. So um, I think it, it's time that we take all of our teachers off the pedestal and the ones that insist on being the pedestal on the pedestal, I think you should run the other way as quickly as you can. Yeah. Well, you see it and you see it a lot. I mean, you see, it's always interesting The uh, there's, I, I can't remember where I first heard this, but um, the distinction between teachers who kind of are looking for students and want to be placed on that pedestal versus the teachers that just sort of like the students come to them, you know, by no will of their own in a certain way. Um, but I wanted to ask, you know, as I've been, just as you're speaking, I'm reflecting on kind of what seems to be a difference between um, the sort of backdrop philosophy of Kripalu, which, as you talk about in the book, was more of a classical kind of dualistic understanding. And it seems like with that dualistic, you know, ontology, it was, it laid the foundation for something like this to happen, right? Because the dualistic um, approach is more, you know, repress the the shadow and, you know, transcend the body-mind through this, you know, um, this spiritual experience. So it seems like it's easy, it's more, it's more fertile soil for something like spiritual bypassing, something like the repression of one's shadow and, you know, and then the subsequent um, uh, explosive things that arise, you know, out of anything that gets repressed. Um, but then, of course, in in the Anyasara incident, right, this was actually a school that had a background philosophy that should have been about, you know, integrating the shadow and at least, you know, at the, you know, at, at, at its word, that's what it seems to be about, right? So what was, um, what was it that kind of, uh, within the second instance, was what permitted something like this to happen? Was it just not embodying the philosophy fully or was it something else? Oh, how we would love to have answers to these questions. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm not a psychologist. Um, and I, I will take a guess at it, we can say. And I, I bet there's as many responses to this as there were people involved yeah, sure. in the uh, community. Um, so I could say, oh yeah, if you want my opinion, okay, I'll tell you my opinion, is that to say the words, we embrace the full spectrum of our being light and dark and to not practice it is hypocritical. And there's no way you can ward off that kind of karma without the practice. So there has to be ways, exercises, a kind of uh, maybe Western psychological approach mm -hmm. that is implemented along with Eastern spiritual practice such that you have an integration of body, mind, which includes emotion, and heart. And I think just the culture, the Indian, Eastern Indian culture, I don't think that doing shadow work was particularly their forte. <laughs> um and then it doesn't matter, Eastern or Western. Um, I, I think, you know, absolute powers corrupts absolutely. And I, I guess I can say this because it's just my personal opinion that I felt so um, connected and aligned and I would say in love with the founder of 
Anusara at the time. We were brothers. We were just like intertwined in our ferocity of longing for freedom. I trust that. I trust that initial impulse. And then I think over the years, because I was there for 15 years as a senior certified teacher and a close advisor in the circle of advisors, I also took on many committee type things of curriculum and teacher training and all that. Um, I was, you know, deeply involved. And I just saw over time that these stories of um, what seemed somewhat questionable or unethical experiences involving alcohol, involving sex, involving, um, uh, I would say things that seem to abuse the premise of the entire um, intentionality of the community that created a duplicity. And I think whatever was happening there, I think the founder may have experienced further and further separation from him from himself due to the vast sudden increase of numbers, first of all, and power and the beauty of how that organization grew that somehow lacked an integration. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's I, I think instead of assessing what happened, what I can do is own my own experience of it and the part that I played, which was I uh, submitted to the experience. In a way, I contributed to the dysfunction. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't want to put blame anywhere. Right. And I bow to that whole experience because if it weren't for that experience, I would not have set the course for my own individual expression, which now I'm completely living um, absorbed and um, in the experience of thinking and feeling that I am doing what I was called to do on this earth and I'm leaving a legacy behind of light, of more of a sense of integration of body, mind, shadow, light, and spirit together, um, which I have seen is having a profound effect on, on others as it's having a pro profound effect on me. Like I'm growing right along with, um, you know, those uh, practitioners. Yeah. You know? So I want to know a little bit about what you've learned. You, you know, you say some beautiful, thing, beautiful things about forgiveness. And obviously, you know, um, yeah. there's plenty of reasons to feel aggrieved and, and victimized by these things um, and these experiences. So what did you, how have you learned about forgiveness from these two experiences? And how has that helped you to move to this place that you're describing now? Um, I see forgiveness as a secondary door that comes after deep acceptance. And deep acceptance, there's no heart transformation without acceptance. The very definition of surrender I like to use is acceptance of what is. And I think that normalizes the waves on the surface. The problem comes when we reject what we're aware of, we um, subvert it or we resign from facing it through denial and avoidance and all that, leads to resentment, which is a heavy, heavy burden on our shoulders. 
I used to have these deep conversations with my mom because, you know, my dad just walked out of the marriage without even any communication. Mm. And she held deep resentment for years, 25 years, then developed ill health. She almost died. Um, it was a cancer. Um, and after that experience, she was more open and vulnerable. And I said, you know, mom, the resentment you hold against dad is having no effect on him. Resentment is not revenge. It's like our, could I say it, our suicidal attempt mm. to get more with the other person that eats away at us. Yeah. And I don't know how many years in a row I was like harping on that with her. And then like maybe five years ago, she let the whole thing go. And there we were at a family, uh, we had a, like a family dinner. They're all out in California. I flew out to California and I was with the family. Oh, I know my sister got married or remarried mm -hmm. and everyone was so joyous. My dad, my mom, my stepmom, and my mom and my stepmom got together and were looking through a photo album on the couch, like relating to each other. My mom and my dad were, were finally able to be decent with each other and be friends, like something broke through. So this idea of forgiveness, you have to use forgiveness for your spiritual growth. That forgiveness is not for the other person. Forgiveness is solely for you and it can happen when you can trust yourself again and until you can get there you have to go through the stages of lack of forgiveness which includes the anger stage resentful stage you know confusion fear loss betrayal and the 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 meaning i'm assigning to the two betrayals that i had from my teachers is betrayal instead of an impasse became a rite of passage for me. And we need to learn how to transform impasses into rites of passage, to transform these obstacles and opportunities to you know, stumbling blocks into stepping stones. And I, I love this one, uh, which is what you think is a setback is really a setup for a comeback. And that requires hope, requires a faith that's deeper than what's going on on the surface. And the access to that level of hope is to forgive, to soften the rigidity of your own heart because you are worth it. Mm. You know, it's forgiving, forgiving someone else is an act of self-love. And I think, you know, to really contemplate some of those terms and to try to come to a deeper understanding. So that's that's what I did. I offered forgiveness eventually. It didn't come right away yeah. to those teachers. And now I practice forgiveness, but forgiveness not without boundaries. In yeah. other words, I would not invite either of those teachers over for dinner. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. You know, once a narcissist, always a narcissist. And I'm like, look, um, I need to protect myself and hold boundary, but I'm never going to put someone else out of my own heart. Yeah. Yeah. That's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. That's, that's such a beautiful reflection on forgiveness. Um, 
uh, and you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, I've noticed in terms of, um, certain reactions to other people, because of course, you know, uh, many people have gone through, have uh, been in a community that sort of fell from grace and, and, and I've seen sort of individuals come out of that and, and, and their, their way of, of kind of treating their grief in a certain way is by seeing that abuse in everything, right? So they become sort of like axe grinders who are looking for what they see as the same structure of abuse happening in all these different contexts. And in some instances, there is instances they're right. Um, uh, but there seems to be, and I don't know, I'm not a psychologist either, but it seems like that kind of, there's something not quite healed about it. There's, you're, there's a, there's a, there's a, a sense in which um, one is kind of stuck in one of these stages that you've been describing in that kind of way of, of moving forward with the whole thing. And, and I'm bringing this up just because, you know, we were mentioning before the interview that, um, you know, you and I share a teacher in Paul uh, Muller Ortega. And, you know, I have no have had no experiences being in. Um, well, I mean, I was I I my first teacher training was with a teacher who was um, connected to the uh, Geshe Michael Roach community. I don't know if you know that whole that story that happened there. Um, but I wasn't deeply in that it was more of a, a sort of peripheral connection. Um, so it wasn't really it didn't tear at my heartstrings so much um, in in this in the same kind of way. So I didn't have those some scars of 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 kind of abuse and and the guru the qualities or the abuses or misuses of power that happen um in in these hierarchical power dynamics so but because you did you might have entered into another community with a charismatic leader and and felt similar things and you and you said you did in a certain way so i want you to talk a little bit about that and 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 what you had to encounter in yourself and what you had to sort of the way you had to approach the whole matter in order to uh, kind of transmute your perception or see uh, this context of uh, it differently. And then I guess, you know, besides that, what do you think is different about, um, uh, you know, this kind of a, a teacher-student relationship that you have now in Blue Throat Yoga? <laughs> Very well said. Uh, you asked the best questions. Oh, thanks. Uh, very uh, detailed and, um, you know, getting me to reveal certain things about myself, which I am happy to do. You know, I follow the path of Tantra, which is the path of radical affirmation. Um, there was a revolutionary shift of the evolution of consciousness where this whole idea of Everything in life is for your awakening, everything. Mm -hmm. And it took me two betrayals to understand that even those intense hurts, the betrayal, the grief and all that were for my awakening. So I think having gone through that and seen how much I grew through those experiences and how I chose to learn about myself you know, giving my power to other people, not valuing myself, that I came out of that finally after two times, um, having more self-esteem, more sense of worthiness. And I think what started to happen is I started to heal my own childhood. Right. And I got to a place where I was no longer afraid of betrayal. It's like I had overcome betrayal. And I, I teach about this in my courses 
I say, okay, who's been betrayed before in their life? And it can be as simple as, I mean, any kind of relationship, there can be little betrayals or, yeah, honey, I'll be home like at six and you get home at eight without calling. That, that's like a mini betrayal. But look, in the churches, from our pastors, from our bosses, um, all these different ways that people abuse their power, big and small, then I say, you know, if you haven't been betrayed yet, just wait. Because I believe there's a notch in the spiritual trajectory called betrayal that we must all go through and navigate. Why? Because it's a window, a lens that pulls you inside to see yourself like no other experience will. And because I, you know, went through that portal and I stayed with it until I came out the other end of it. I gained something, you know, uh, and I gained something that was like, no one has power over me unless I give them permission first. Mm -hmm. And in a positive light, I said, and, I, and no one can take my joy away unless I give them permission, which means I'm more centered in the ocean underneath, which is the unreasonable happiness, happiness for no reason at all, compared to, oh, when someone compliments me, I go up, I feel good. When someone insults me, I go down, I feel horrible. I'm like this ping pong, you know, like a buoy on the surface of the ocean, up and down, up and down, up and down. The yogi needs and wants and longs for something deeper. And that's what I'm about now. So I did hit my edge there <laughs> with Paul, my beloved teacher. Um, and I saw what looked like trappings of a closed community, um, which could be seen as a cult. Um, but I know that's not Paul's intention, and he would teach us. He put him. He took. He stepped off the pedestal again and again and again. But there are various things that looked similar to the other communities that I went through. Yeah, and I had to grapple with that. And as a result, it took me two years before I became an acharya, which is a teacher of this method where you have to, you know, wholeheartedly buy in and, and, and uh, be able to, you know, give, give the, the teaching and initiate people into the practice, which I thoroughly love now. But I had to go through that and I, I was afraid. And I, I, in the beginning, I remember I was challenging Paul, you know, and he would get fiery back and we'd have these fiery conversations. Oh and gosh, I wish I had been there. <laughs> I said, oh my God, I can't believe, like, I just, I just made him angry. And then I'd go up after Really? Todd, you made him angry? My well, gosh, I can't imagine it. His response was very prickly, but then we would work it out. I'd go up afterwards and he was like the gentlest lamb afterwards and you know, I'd go up there and he would say, hey, buddy, or hey, dude. I mean, he was just like, whoa, no, this is a friend. This is a colleague. Honestly, he's not that that much older than I am, you know. Um, anyway, I, I found a way to befriend Paul, befriend the teachings, cut myself a break, um, and uh, empower myself. So that I could be an adult learner, learn at my own pace, go at my own own way, interpret the teachings the way that I needed to for me, that I feel like I became, I contributed to the conversation. I brought my unique individual perspective. And every time I share in group there on retreat, um, 
I say to myself first, what do I have to contribute now that I need to say for me, but that could also uplift other people? Yeah. And it seems like when I do open my mouth, he is so receptive. And then he gets inspired. And then he goes off on this whole other tangent of teaching that I feel like I'm not as much of a student as I am a co-teacher with him as everyone in the community is a co-teacher, we're co we're doing this together. Yeah. And to, to run an organization, there has to be a head of the organization. So then I've dissolved my resistance to hierarchy. Yeah. And guess what? I've dissolved my resistance to duality. Yeah. And the beautiful term, I mean, the Advaita Vedanta term for duality is Advaita, not two. The tantric term is Advaya, which means Never without duality. Mm. Non-dual is having the experience of life, day-to-day -day life, that is never without duality. In other words, how can I integrate all of it? All of it is the spiritual practice. Yeah. That's beautiful. Mm. Wow. Um, so, you know, you're talking a little bit about how in this context, you, your, um, voice wasn't suppressed. And, um, and, and so I guess I, I'm a curious about, you know, just to circle back a little bit, um, and, and maybe to help people listening because we, I think many of us and many listeners probably have been in situations with charismatic leaders and maybe they don't even realize their voice is being suppressed. So, you know, you found this incredible, um, way of, of recognizing your own empowerment or empowering yourself through your experience. What are some suggestions that you would have for practitioners, um, who may feel that they're in a place where the hierarchy is in some sense disempowering them? Um, how can how can they how can we offer a lens or how can you offer a lens based on what you've experienced, um, you know, onto that uh, possibility? Yeah. Well, I always go by head and heart. You know, uh, Chitananda. So, Chit, of course, Chit head is is consciousness, and Ananda is of the heart, and you want to always be following your heart. I, I like to say, you know, heart leads, head follows. Because if you're only going by your head, you're going to be afraid of everything. The head, I mean, even in our postures, head forward position is I need to see it before I believe it. Mm -hmm. When the heart goes forward, it's I believe it and then I see it. And if I can believe first, I'm taking full responsibility. I'm in the ocean now. Seeing is the waves, believing is the ocean, and we need both. So I think to trust your heart, if you feel uplifted, if you feel good, empowered, if you feel a sense of love and belonging, those are the two things in our DNA that we are primordially um, hooked up with. And if there's a you feel a sense of belonging, there's got to be a certain warmth to it. Not intense discipline or judgment or um, austerities, okay, but a warmth. I mean, there can be warmth and austerities too because then there's the renunciate practice and all that, which is good for certain people. So there has to be some kind of a warmth um, and follow and a, a heart feeling. But then also we have to discern. And it's really the discernment. So I would say 
you know, everyone already has all the tools they need to make good decisions. Yeah. Just have to employ them and not let, I mean, it's kind of like a relationship where like in the intensity of the love attraction, <laughs> our discernment is lessened. Yeah. <laughs> that, that we have to slow it down. That's why, you know, make haste slowly. And re- here's my, here's my advice. Make haste slowly. Mm. Um, is that we need to always check in with the head and the heart and we need to discern and look closely. And I had to look closely because on the surface I saw, Oh, I'm entering into another guru run organization because that is, it's not the structure, but let's say given my, my history, it was very close to the structure, but given who I am now, I had to look deeper and, Honestly, the guru thing was the obstacle I had to remove from my consciousness before I could wholeheartedly receive. And as soon as I was able to trust myself such that I could release the fear of being taken advantage of, I entered a state of total participation, empowerment, joy and ultimately fulfillment to an extent where I, I feel like I found, you know, the perfect path for me should we say right now, because life is evolutionary journey, but I feel like I'm more in myself making the decisions rather than the other person making decisions on me for my, on my behalf, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so I would say combination of head and heart, you have to examine both. And if both are there and both feel clear, go for it. Yeah. You know, and it takes risk. We're here to risk life. Take a chance. We need this. This is our one precious life. You know, it's like the Tantra is, this is uh, from Douglas Brooks. He talks about, we really seek to have wildness without savagery, uh, fury without anger urgency without anxiety. Mm. And yet, if you feel savagery, anger, and anxiety, that's yoga too. Mm. That's beautiful. <laughs> so um, this has been a really uh, fantastic conversation and we've gone way over uh, the time I wanted to go, but that's it's been great because we've talked about so many wonderful things and I didn't want to cut it short. Um, but I have one more question that extends from um, uh, what you had mentioned at the beginning about, um, or maybe prior to when we started recording about us being meaning making machines and obviously so much of what, um, we've been discussing and, and so much about what's beautiful about your life is, is your ability to learn from these experiences and then also kind of forge, uh, you know, uh, worlds of meaning for yourself that allow you to be empowered. And, and I think there's this, um, this question, maybe the shadow question of that. And so what, and what I want you to, to maybe talk a little bit about is, um, you know, there's, 
there is this way, and I'm actually remembering this from the the philosophy as it was espoused in the, the Geshe Michael Roach communities around emptiness, and it was misread from what I know now about the concept of emptiness. It was misread to imply that everything is your projection, and um, of course, this can be problematic in this situ- in a situation where you're, for example, in a situation of abuse with your partner, and like, well, the abuse isn't really happening; it's just your perception. Forge a new meaning around the experience, <laughs> right? <laughs> and 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 then you're and then you stay in your you know abusive context so this is obviously not what you're saying when you're talking about us being meaning making machines or the, the the teaching that's there but what distinguishes us being meaning making machines or the 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 teaching at the heart of that from this which is essentially a spiritual bypassing gesture right um i think again it's the capacity to discern with clarity. Mm-hmm. And I think the only way you can get to that clarity is by having a deep spiritual practice. And I would say also, uh, including meditation, where we start to disentangle ourselves from our samskaras, our patterns, our imprints, uh, our throne way of being to access another way of being that is immersed deeply in this ocean of consciousness. Um, so that's that's one thing. Um, I think to understand the victim role, which is kind of the easy way out, victim consciousness, where we feel um, overwhelmed by situations or we feel that life is happening to me and we say, wow, why does this keep happening to me? We need to shift that to life is happening for me. Mm. How can we see the situation as life happening for me? And that's what I mean by we are meaning-making machines. So if you're in an abusive relationship, the first thing is get the hell out of it. Like, <laughs> what, like, what are you waiting for? And the abuse can be someone saying, This is not an abusive relationship. You need to shift your awareness and make a different meaning. If that's coming from the outside, I mean, it's coming from the abuser. Oh, my God, run the other way. You have to take responsibility. No one can evolve your consciousness. Only you can. No one can enlighten you. Only you can. So the idea is that um, the meaning that you're making, you have to assess if the meaning you're assigning to that like oh my lover is abusing me this always happens to me i'm lacking something i just don't have what it takes to have an adult relationship i just constantly being abused so you have to recognize is that dimming your light up or down Mm. obviously down So then the meaning you're making of that relationship is you're putting yourself down. So assign a new meaning. Like, you know, I think we have to figure out what we need to be healthy. And certainly you can't stay healthy in an abusive relationship. You know, you have to create a healthy self-boundary. I mean, maybe there really is love and you can go back to it with coaching and everything. But um, so I think... We have to discern, get yourself out of danger first, make it safe, create healthy self-boundaries until you feel safe. And then when you look back, 
how has that abusive relationship uplifted you? And now I could say, I am no longer willing to sell my soul to somebody else just to get a little piece of ass or just to get enough from from somebody, you know, um, that I'm wanting authentic, empowered, equal platform relationship. I want equality. And wow, how I how this has helped me is now I can smell an abusive relationship and I no, no longer go near there. I now have the power to create the healthy self-boundary that I was unable to do until this point. And I'm so grateful that this is the 10th abuser or whatever. And I finally learned my lesson. And now um, I'm better for it. And I think ultimately through deep acceptance of whatever our past was, and just think of the, the range of trauma that we've all been through. It just... If you're a human being, you're going to be traumatized. How how are you address? How are you making that trauma mean something empowering for you? And you see it all the time. Some of the the best psychologists or the best writers about their psychological process came out of their flaw. It came out of their out of their wound, out of their PTSD, and now they're experts on it because they they're the ones that got through it. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. So, I love I love that. Like we need to look back, assign a meaning that's uplifting, that helps us out of the hole. Because I mean, as great as the shadow is, life happens outside of the hole. Yeah. And I would say to live an empowered life, you got to embrace the full spectrum, shadow and light. And we keep doing the shadow work by by maintaining awareness of what it is by being humble and courageous at the same time. We have to walk through the fires of this life. That is the yogi's heart, filled with courage Mm. to get to the other side. And when we're on the other side, we're still embracing shadow and light. But now the light that shines from me because of all the work that I did with my shadow and it continues, feels like an authentic light that nobody can take away from me. Mm. I forged it myself from the darkness. Now the darkness is my friend. It's not driving my vehicle. It's in the back seat. But it's there. We're going together because we are limited and we are unlimited beings. We are both human and divine. And that is the beautiful paradox of life that mm. makes it all worthwhile. You know, I, that's, that's worth getting up in the morning for. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, Todd. Well, this has been a beautiful conversation. And um, just to end, I'm curious if there's anything, you know, based on what we've said, um, based on what you've shared that you want to offer as a final word to the listeners. Well, as my grandfather told me a long, long time ago, just follow your heart and everything else will work out. That's beautiful. So Todd, the um, I, I want to mention that you are um, giving classes online. I wanted to mention that so people can find you. And you're doing it on Facebook Live through Ashaya Yoga. Is it through the Ashaya Yoga Facebook page or just through your personal page? Yeah, through the Ashaya Yoga with Todd Norian page. And okay. um, I have uh, roughly about 15 videos there now. And I'm going to continue to do free Facebook Live classes a couple times a week. This week I'm doing three. And then I'm starting a 30-day thir- challenge um, 
as a for pay course on Zoom, and that's going to be the Ashaya morning morning sadhana practices, and it's a sort of a more in depth thirty day commitment um, because I really think spiritual practice requires consistency, mm-hmm. and it's day in day out of the practice that helps stabilize us in source consciousness. It helps us maintain the sense of the vastness of the ocean, you know, while we're going through the turbulent waves and right now very turbulent times. So I'm partly offering it because I think we all could use a deep root connection to something that brings you back into a state of inner peace so we can deal with what's going on from a place of power and perspective and uh, fullness so that we assign even a positive meaning for what's happening right now across the globe. Excellent. So um, I'll point everybody who's listening to ashayayoga.com, correct? Yeah. A-S-H-A-Y-A yoga.com. And then, um, you know, we've been talking about your manuscript today. Um, So presumably people are going to want to read that, um, but it's not yet published. So how can they, I'm assuming you have sort of an opt-in to your mailing list on your website, correct? Um, So I I want to encourage everybody who's listening to um, get on Todd's mailing list so that when he does, when the book is published, you can uh, receive a notification and, and be one of those first people to get your hands on it. It is a very beautiful book and I really enjoyed um, reading it. And have to go back now and finish the 100 pages or so that I missed. <laughs> um, but I got to the juicy bits, so that's that was uh, what I wanted to hit. <laughs> um, also, you know, there were so many beautiful things about your relationship as well that you touch on. There's lots of stuff that we didn't talk about that's really um, uh, great to dive into. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to encourage people to to stay abreast of that as you, you know, come to a place where you can publish it. Thank you so much, Todd. You're welcome. Thank you very much.